we're in a series where we're looking at the liturgy of the church, the liturgy being the menu that you find in your bulletin each week. And that to understand why do we do what we do. And we've looked at the call to worship. We've looked last week at singing. You know, did it strike you as odd uh, when I asked the question last week, where else do you weekly gather with a group of people to sing? Uh, Maybe at a, a sporting event, perhaps? But it's really unusual to gather together once a week with many times people that we don't know very well, strangers, guests, and a guest can come in and be a stranger to all of us and then join their voice with ours and we're one and united in song. This week, we're looking at why do we confess our sin? Not simply confess our sin silently in the privacy of our home or a a, a place where we're meeting with God, not where we do so privately, but publicly, corporately, and then follow that with an assurance of pardon. We're looking at these things because it's important to know that as we gather together corporately, as a family together, it's a dress rehearsal again and an acting out, a dramatization of the gospel that we indeed, this morning we'll see, we indeed are great sinners. If you're a visitor this morning, you're going, great. I picked a wonderful first service to come to. But wait, the gospel is not just bad news, we're a sinner in a pit, but it's great good news that we have a Savior who is a perfect fit for sinners. He takes without any reluctance great joy in forgiving us our sin and providing us a newness of strength in life to live as the sons and the daughters that we're designed and promised to become. And so there's great good news. And when we gather together, we rehearse that for others to see that we own that, that we do find ourselves to be a confessing people, mindful of the depths of our sin, but also a people who have bold assurance and faith in God's promise to act justly, fairly, and charitably to forgive and wipe away all sin. Well, that's where we're going this morning, and I want to tell you that it's, a, it's an important thing, this repentance, uh, confessing our sin. Tomorrow, some of you are anxiously awaiting the, the presidential nominee's debate. And we're going to see each nominee, in turn, tell what their campaign is about. And if they are elected king, excuse me, president, (coughs) or queen, then as they become the leader of a nation, what their agenda or what their goals are. Well, if Jesus Christ were on that debate stage as a nominee for president, or king of our nation. He would say 
in one word, his agenda for his people is repent. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, repent, for the kingdom of God has come. Martin Luther, when he marched down the alleyway in Wittenberg, when he, when he walked, walked down College Avenue and he faced the huge Wittenberg door, which currently the doors are inlaid with, with metal, and those 95 theses are carved, etched into the door permanently. And people come from miles around to take pictures of the Wittenberg door and then to go in to the church. As Wendy and I stood before those doors and, and uh, she said, you want a picture? And I'm like, yeah, and try to capture the first line if you can. Very, very dark. I wondered if people understood out of the 95 Thesis, what the very first one was. The very first one, the very first point that this reformer would emphasize right out of the gate was repent. Be a repenting people. Make, make repentance a way of life. Now, again, we hear the word repentance, or we think of the image of confessing our sin, and we're, we're left with a very heavy, uh, negative feeling. Maybe we feel the increased burden or the arousal of guilt. Perhaps we feel that, that rumbling of shame, and we want to avoid any rehearsal of our sin, but I want to leave you, I want to start with an image this morning that we're going to unpack through Psalm 130 and then also 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. See the image of a person who has fallen into a deep pit. Perhaps it's a, a pit of their own making. You know, where someone sets out to, to dig a deep hole and they mindlessly didn't have a rope or a ladder or a means out, and they just kept digging and digging and digging until, oh my goodness, I'm so deep that I can't get out unless somebody gives me a hand. But this is a pit that you cannot get out of on your own. And it's a pit that it goes a little deeper and a little deeper and a little deeper constantly. But then along comes someone with a ladder. And this person is not taunting us on the edge, but they lovingly say, I long to put my ladder down into your hole. Would you have me to bring a ladder down? And not only do they, upon our request and our plea, please, please, I've been in this pit so long, I've been in this hole so long, please let down your ladder. Not only will they let down the ladder, but they'll come down that ladder themselves. And they'll lovingly take us into their arms, dirty as we are, foul as we are, reeking of sin, and they'll take us out of the pit. And our response, as they tell us over and over again, and make us clean, 
and they give us assurance that we're out of the hole now. We're pardoned. We're forgiven. Our response will be praise. Our response will be wonder and awe. That's the sermon. But let me give you God's word. There's at least three problems that we have. We have three problems with the pit. And the first and the foremost is we have this sense of guilt. That's how you know that you're in the pit of sin. You do feel guilty. Something is wrong. Now, the church can be guilty at times of what I would call spiritual malpractice. That's where a leader or a teacher or a preacher will invoke the impulse of guilt. Uh, it used to always be my habit at the end of a worship service to stand at a door and to greet those people the, the, that had worshipped with us and to, to speak with them in passing. And it was amazing how many times, if I, if I really felt like uh, I could measure compliment to the message, if I would make people feel guilty, I would get more compliments. It's almost like people are like, man, it just you've got to be preaching if you're preaching down to people. Man, if you're condemning people and you're saying, oh, you rotten sinners, I mean, I know it, so it resonates with me. That must be God. That's spiritual malpractice. We're not to be in a church. We're not to be those that, I'm not up here to call people out. I'm not here to say, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, good to have you here. How are you doing on the marriage since you had that affair? That's, that's guilt manipulation. That's, that's condemning people even in your midst. That's not what the psalmist is talking about. But the psalmist is saying, Lord, I'm pleading with you. I know my iniquity. I'm, I, I can't even count it. And if you were to count my iniquity, I wouldn't even be able to stand on my feet in your presence. I feel it. I feel the burden. I feel the stain. I feel the weight of my sin. Secondly, we know that there is many times a sense of, of sin unconfessed. One of the residual effects can be sickness and more sin. Even as we come to the table in the words of the institution where the Apostle Paul tells us what to, to do as we come to the table, he says, be mindful that you come to the table not as a hypocrite because that's why many have fallen asleep a term for, and they're sick and they're ill. James 5 tells us that if anyone is sick, one of the things that they should do is to call the elders of the church together that they might lay hands on them following their confession of sin and that they would be prayed for to be healed. David in Psalm 32 said, when I didn't confess my sin, my very bones waxed and ached within me. What's going on? I believe psychologically 
and physiologically, there's a connection to unconfessed sin. I have a friend who is a psychiatrist at the Veterans Hospital here in Charleston. And Wendy and I were entertaining her and her husband in our home. And I asked her, and she's not a Christian, but I asked her, I said, when you're dealing with these troubled veterans who have experienced many, many horrific things, what do you do about guilt and shame? What do you do about guilt and shame? And she went on to say, yes, it's true. Guilt and shame are crippling. They can feed addictions as people try to subdue them that way. They try to, to, to numb themselves to the voices. As they try to, uh, it, it can create isolation, extreme loneliness as they separate themselves from people because they don't want to be seen as the sinners that they feel that they are. There, there's, there's worry, there's ulcers, there's migraines. There's all sorts of things that can be hatched because of just unconfessed sin. And she says, frankly, I don't know how to deal with guilt or shame. We don't really have anything in our medical bag for that except to tell them that they should talk to themselves in a mirror and tell themselves that they are forgiven, that they're forgiven. And I said, but is that true? How successful are they? And she says, frankly, they can't forgive themselves for some of the things that they've done. So she says, we just give them a pill. We just give them a pill to try to calm those voices that haunt them and condemn them. The last thing is separation from God. Our own uh, confession of faith in chapter 11 says this, God continues to forgive the sins of those who are justified. So this morning, if you're a Christian, you continue to sin, but God continues to forgive. The great and awesome mystery is, is that you are forgiven of your sins all in your past, all in your present. Even your future sins are already forgiven. And yet the practice of the confessing of our sins is a practice that is healthy because we are mindful of our sin and we're mindful that God continues to take that from our minds and our hearts and our lives. He continues to wash away the stain of every sin. Although they can never fall from the state of justification, they, this is Christians, may by their sins come under God's fatherly displeasure and not have a sense of his presence with them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, ask for forgiveness, and renew their faith in repentance. And so we see here that when I don't confess my sin, I have a growing sense that something's wrong, guilt. I also might find that it manifests itself with a sickness or more sin. I will go to my idols to give me value or to show me worth where I feel unworthy and unvalued. So I feel sinful. And then also, 
it creates this plateau in my relationship with God. Now, on his side of things, the relationship is the same, except I begin to experience not his condemnation, but his displeasure. In other words, he looks at my sin as something that's destroying me. He doesn't look at my sin as something that I'm breaking a rule as much as something that is hurtful to me. And it breaks his father's heart. And so he grows very still and quiet. And then we sense, you know, I'm not, as, I'm not sensing that intimacy like I once had. And we come to confess our sin again. And God embraces us and assures us of his forgiveness. And all is well. First John, and this is out of the message, Eugene Peterson. First John 1, 8 and 9 says this. If we claim that we're free of sin, we're only fooling ourselves. A claim like that is errant nonsense. If we claim that we've never sinned, we out and out contradict God. Make a liar out of him. A claim like that only shows off our ignorance of God. There are certain groups that would say, for instance, Christian science, Unitarians, they would say, we are without sin. We are sinless creatures. And they put up a great argument against the truth of God that they are not sinners. But John comes and he says, don't argue with God. Agree with God. Find harmony and agree with him that you are a sinner that we have dirty hands, and we have unclean minds, that our heart is dark. Start at that point of agreement. And yes, I know that that can be a point that is extremely humbling to say, I am dirty, but we're offering dirty hands to a father who longs to come down the ladder into that pit and visit us with grace and mercy. John warns us, don't argue, but learn to agree with God. Because what's afoot here is, his, is our very salvation, saving us from ourselves. Church is not divided into good people and bad people. It's not divided into religious people and pagans. It's not divided into sinners and non-sinners. We're all sinners. Now what are we going to do about that? What can we do about that? The invitation is to see it through at two rivers. Why eyes are wide open. They're not closed. We don't minimize our sin. But we understand that if we bring it out into the light, it can die there. In your small group, is your small group experiencing the intimacy of confessed sin to one another? You can be more specific in your small group and in your fellowship or in your discipleship times one-on-one or one-on-two with other people. Are you taking advantage of that with another person to say, this is something that I want to share with you and it's deep and it's dark, but I want to confess it. Or do we just gloss over it, minimize it, or say nothing at all. 
Now, the benefit of sharing it with a community group or another person is because we won't be so specific in a congregation. But when we are able to bring those things that we're struggling with, particularly things that bring us shame or cause us to blush, when we bring it into the light, it dies there. It doesn't have that secret hold on us anymore. Now someone else knows, and they don't condemn us, but they put their arm around us and say, let's walk through this together. I will follow you with my prayers. I will send to you words of good news, the gospel, encouragement. That's where we go down the ladder into the pit in their life. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus shows us how this works out, how he comes down into the pit of a life with a parable. And in this parable, there are two men. There's a tax collector who is, he is the worst, he has the worst vocation. He's considered a traitor in Israel. He betrays people. He takes their wealth from them. He skims off the top. He's definitely far from the church, but we find him in worship. And then we find a preacher, a theologian, a commentator, a popular author. We find a great religious leader, a Pharisee there. Jesus Christ tells this parable to those listening, to some who trusted in themselves that they were all right, that they were righteous. I don't really sin anymore. And treated others with contempt. Notice the effect. When I begin to distance myself from sin or identifying myself as a sinner, I begin to look at other people as sinners. I begin to treat them and measure them, and I treat them with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. And then we skip a bit, and we see the tax collector's prayer. And the tax collector prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And in the Greeks, it's the sinner. He sees himself not in comparison to other people. Well, you know, I'm kind of a little sinner compared to her. I mean, she is really bad. But yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I, I, you know, I'm critical too, but not like her. He doesn't do that. He says, I'm the worst. God, like the psalmist, he cries out and says, I can't even stand before you. But be merciful to me, the sinner. Iniquities beyond count. He sees the depth of his pit. And amazingly, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went home justified rather than the other. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. What's happening? The word justified is rich in meaning. But it's a forensic term or a courtroom term, which means that the guilty is now declared innocent by the work of another and that that judgment stands. So this guilty man who has confessed himself to be the sinner, I'm such a sinner, and falls before the mercy of God. He doesn't try to bury it, deny it, or deal with it on his own. God says, at that moment, he is visited like a courtroom appearance by God the gavel comes down, 
everything is removed. He's judged to be innocent. At that moment, maintain the image, God, Jesus Christ, comes down as lowering the ladder into the pit and is taking him out of the pit. In verses 4 through 7, we see this promise of the loving ladder. God is faithful, God is just, and God cleanses. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, John tells us that God is both faithful and just when we confess our sins. What does that mean? We find that if you look there in Psalm 130, for the occurrence of the word Lord in verse 7, now notice I've got a new ESV. So if you look in verse 2, O Lord, the word Lord there is in small letters. But in verse 7, it's L-O-R-D text. That's the covenant name for Yahweh. The covenant, as we see in Jeremiah 31, bear with me. Jeremiah 31 tells us this. This is the covenant. Here's the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, the promise that I'm going to make, that I'm going to keep, my wedding vows to you is I'm going to unite myself to you. I'm going to be your God forever, and you will be my people. And he goes on to say, I'm going to put my word in your heart. I'm going to put this detector so that you know right from wrong. You won't be left to figure it out. I'm not a, I'm not a, a fickle, arbitrary judge. You're going to have a sense of what right, and wrong, what pleases me and what displeases me. And I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now the psalmist, as he's writing, he says in verses 5 and 6 that like a, a watchman on the rampart, on the fortress wall, he's in the dark and he's waiting for the sun to rise. And he's, he's awake and he's watching. But the psalmist doesn't know quite how it's going to be accomplished. In the Old Testament, it was the blood of a lamb that had to be done on a regular basis. But he knew that God is faithful. God is loyal. God never breaks his word. God said, I will forgive their iniquity. He takes them at his word. I will remember their sin no more. He takes them at his word. Do you? Do you believe God is faithful? If you're a disciple today, every time you confess your sins, God doesn't go, yeah, you got that right. It's about time. No. He's lowering the ladder. And he's saying, oh, little one, let me help. Let me encourage you to know that I'm made. You're not made for these things. I am made to take on the burden of your sin. I am made to... To, to wade into your iniquity. I am made to give you pardon and forgiveness. Give them to me. Carry them no more. We find that he's also just. And this is in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Another image. But again, imagine forensic or courtroom scene of what's happened. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt, that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In other words, you've got a document, and it details every one of your sins, past, present, and future. 
and the accuser, your enemy, Satan, stands before God and says, oh man, this is longer than a Christmas, uh, a Christmas wish list. Man, it just goes out the door and down the street, around the circle. I mean, it's a long list. Have we got a couple of centuries that I can recite all of their sins? And particularly, Father, God, the sins after they became a Christian, the sins of so-called good church members. And God the Father says, oh, you just got a mimeograph copy. I've got the original document, and it's right over there. Oh, well, you know, for court proceedings, I want the original document. Well, it's right over there on the cross. It's nailed to the cross. So that when I look at the cross of where my only dear, beloved son died naked and in agony, I see the price that he paid. And I am all about justice. If I were to condemn or not forgive any sin confessed, then I have to step down from my throne. I cease to be God. I cease to be just. But what's more, and it just it disarms Satan. It also disarms anybody in your family, your friends, other Christians, who you find condemn you or judge you. Because God's ruling is greater than their ruling. You can say, stand before him and say, yes, I did transgress. I did commit this. I have asked God to forgive me, and I hope in time you can forgive me, but I stand assured that that ladder has been lowered. He has taken me up in his arms. Justice has been rendered, and now he's taking me up. I am forgiven. And the third thing that he promises in 1 John 1.9 is not only does he do that, not only does he say, I promise to forgive you. Not only is he just to say, I do now forgive you, and it stands written and done, but he says, I want to restore you. That's why it's so healthy in our midst to rehearse again and again and again and again. As we wake up and we see more and more the depth of our sin, and our heart begins to change, and we say, I want to be rid of this. I want to be free of this. God, change me. I confess it. But I'm weak. I confess it. But I, I want to be the son and daughter that you would have me to be. God says, I agree. And now that you're in agreement with me, let's do it together. And he washes. He washes the dirty parts, perhaps that are so horrible that we won't even let our mind go there. And while he's about the business of washing us of what we do verbally confess, or we mindfully confess, he just says, while I'm here, I'm going to clean it all up. He's constantly, constantly cleaning us. And he delights to do so. Those of you who are parents, when a child comes to you, perhaps at mealtime, and soon they're, they're soon to sit at the family table and break bread with the family. And they come and they're just covered. You know, they've been playing outdoors and they've just got dirty hands they go to the bathroom and they wash and then they get ready to sit down. You're like, oh, 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 oh. 
Isn't it a delight to say, let me help. There's more dirt here than even you can see or reach. I mean, just to, to see a loving father who says, I delight in washing you because I'm crafting a son and daughter. Finally, I want you to see that he does this through the power of the public pardon. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Isaiah 1.18 says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. I want to encourage you to, to recognize that when we include the assurance of pardon, we would never have just a confession of sin or a silent confession without assurance of pardon. That would be to provoke the impulse of guilt without showing the great, great grace to God's glory of his pardon. I used to be on the board for a crisis pregnancy center and we would annually have an occasion where at the crisis pregnancy center we had many women who had at one point in their life aborted a child. And we would have an annual memorial service filled with the weight, the burden of their transgression. My homily to them would be over and over again, Romans 8 1. That now you're confessing your sin, owning it, seeing the death, even feeling the sense of shame, but turning to God and not away from God. He has entered into your life, and He promises there is no condemnation with Him. We would go outside, and we had a balloon. And each of those women would remember the child's loss, and they would let that balloon go, symbolizing that that child is with the Lord. And I would proclaim, even it's been proclaimed over you today, as we corporately confess our sins, as John earlier read from 1 John, that we are, that God is faithful and just to forgive us and promises to cleanse us and use our confession to restore us as men and women. And then it is declared, brothers and sisters, your sins are forgiven. Putting ourselves in the point of a minister to grant what's called absolution. That you would hear not the words of simply a minister or an elder, but you would hear the very voice of Jesus saying, Brother, sister, you're forgiven. There's power in that. There's a relief in that. I've confessed the things that are to my shame. God takes those things. He enters into those things. He's not ashamed of those things, but he takes those things, deals with them, and then he is so quick to proclaim forgiveness. Now by faith, will I embrace that? Or will I continue to be burdened? 
if you continue to be burdened, I want to suggest to you that it's because either, number one, you've never really seen the depth of your sin. You, you've been shy about going very deep in confession, being very specific. And so what you're doing is you're just you're dealing with surface sins. Lord, forgive me for getting angry. Why did you get angry? Well, I got angry because they, they just made me mad. Why did they make you mad? Well, they made me mad because they didn't give me what I wanted. What did you want? Well, I wanted something very selfish, and they stood in the way of that. Now we've gotten to the heart of it. But if you continue to feel this guilt and this burden, this unresolved sin, perhaps you've not gone deep enough yet. And then secondly, you may not have embraced your pardon with all thanks, knowing that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Did you see in Psalm 130 here, when he says in verse 4, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared? Now, this is what a lot of people outside of the church misinterpret, and it's what they're afraid of. That we get together and we gaze morbidly at our sin, we talk about just how foul we are, we're just so bad, bad, bad. But we're saying that, and we just sure hope that God doesn't get us, because God is scary, and he's a judge. But the word for feared here is the word for awesome, awe. It's a word of revering God. What the psalmist is saying is, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. What it is saying is, you. It's you. It's a relationship with you. Where you are, I want to be. I want to be in right relationship with you. In other words, I'm not as concerned about the consequences of punishment for my sin as much as how we're doing. And I know with you, there's forgiveness. And that's what I fear, revere, all worship about. That's what I find the most beautiful about you. Close with this. In Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, Jean Valjean is the mayor. And as the mayor, he has received word that one of his former employees who was dismissed wrongly and has fallen into prostitution has been arrested and is getting ready to be sent away for six years hard labor. He goes to the police station and there is Javert. And Javert is a legalist, no mercy. And he has already condemned her and is just moments away from sending her off to prison. And the mayor comes and says, let that woman go. 
by the authority that I have as the mayor, I trump the city police, and I say, let her go. I have reviewed her case, and I know her case. I know her now, and I choose to show her mercy. She looks at him, and she had long believed that it was the mayor who was responsible for her ill effects. And now she looks at him, and she says, I never really knew you. Can it be? This is like the voice of an angel telling me that I'm free to go. I don't have to go to prison where I would certainly die. Is it true the one that I spat upon earlier, I've condemned with my words? I've slandered? That you're showing mercy to me when I can give you nothing? Is it true? She said, yeah, it's true. She falls at his feet, faints away to be carried off to an infirmary as she looks at him in the holiest and most revered and awesome light. One that she had condemned and written off. Now, by this act of great grace and life-saving mercy, she comes to adore and worship him. That's rehearsed again at this table. We don't come confessing our sins because we fear God. We come because we know that in the relationship, He is eager to welcome us back at that point with pardon, forgiveness, mercy, acceptance, and the restoration of a right relationship with Him. And we love Him for that. So we relish the confession of our sins. We don't cringe at it. We're not shy anymore because we know that our sin is a perfect match for our great Redeemer and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you invite us to this table. And in coming to this table, we see our sin as we make our approach. Who are we that we should eat of your body and drink of your blood, that we should raise a glass and say, I am a follower of Christ, when our lives have reflected so little of that. Lord, may we take one look at our sin and ten looks at the broken bread, ten looks at the wine and the cup, ten looks at a Savior who justly paid the price that we would be completely forgiven. Free. Not free to go back to sin, but now free to be the men and women that you've designed us to be. So, Father, you are changing us by our confession, and you are drawing out our worship to your great glory by your pardon. So, Father, receive both our confession even now as we receive your pardon and you grant us healing in our wounds as we meet you at this table in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen.